you're hearing right now is the song Abisma Marino. It is from Sis Malakian featuring Wiki Sikis. Sis Malakian gave us permission to play this song on this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am talking about Monster Kid Radio. Welcome to the show. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm super excited because we've got an old friend on the show, and I've been sitting on this recording for quite some time because I did the recording, and then we had Luigi DeMaio, and then, you know, it's been sitting here in the hopper. Some things have changed since the last time I talked to Paul, but, you know, just kind of go back a month in your own mind when you listen to the conversation that I had with Paul McComas. Now, Paul is no stranger to Monster Kid Radio. He's talked about the Inner Sanctum films with us. We've talked about Lon Chaney Jr. We've talked about I Walked With a Zombie and a few other things as well. And this time around, we're getting into one of his primary loves, the mythos of King Kong, in particular, King Kong Alive on Broadway. Paul was fortunate enough to see this on Broadway in a pretty incredible seat. And he'll tell you all about it in the conversation that we're going to have here in a little bit. He's going to talk about what the experience was like for him. And then, of course, because what happens when monster kids start talking is, well, they just start talking. So a lot of other things come up as well. I think we dip into zombie movies. And at one point, um, you know what? You're just going to have to listen to the conversation. But it does kind of go all over the place towards the end. And you know what? I loved it. I have so much fun talking with everybody that comes on the show, and I get a double dose. I get an extra treat, because not only do I get to have the conversation, but then afterwards, after the fact, usually after several days, if not several weeks have passed, I get to go back in and edit the conversation, and I get to re-experience that conversation again. So I'm kind of spoiling myself. I hope you guys and gals dig this enough the first time around, but of course, if you need more, you can always rewind on the say You know how it works. Anyway, Paul, thank you for being part of the show again, and uh, your book is in the mail. Listeners, just as a heads up, at the end of the conversation, something started happening with Paul's phone. I'm not really sure what the deal was, but he started cutting in and out pretty badly, and I tried to correct a few things on my end, both while we were recording and in post-production, and ultimately, well, I wasn't able to figure out how to fix it. So... The conversation does just kind of trail off, but I'll come back on to give you the information that he was giving me at the time that the phone started to cut out. It's towards the end. You know, you don't miss out on the King Kong talk. So, you know what? Just sit tight, hang out, enjoy what you get of Paul. I enjoyed it quite a bit. You know what else I enjoyed? Kenny knocked it out of the park with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. He found basically a behind-the-scenes journal of the making of the 1970s King Kong film. So he's going to go through that. And Mark Maskey's Beta Capsule Review reviews the 10th episode of Ultraman. Now, Mark told me this is a personal favorite of his, and I did not plan this. I am not looking ahead at the Ultraman episode guides that are online. There aren't very many, but, you know, I'm not looking ahead at the various guides online to tell me what episode's coming up next and what monster's coming up next. There is a King Kong connection in that episode of Ultraman. So you get not just one, not just two, but three segments of the show touching on Kong. I don't know if that's some sort of Kong coincidence. That was a really, really bad pun. So before I embarrass myself any further, why don't we go ahead and get into the rest of the show right after this. It's all new. The creature walks among us, more terrifying in human form. 
striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. The creature walks among us, horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. Fire burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us, the grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotions. Boss Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program. mightiest monster meets the world's mightiest menace. King Kong, bigger, stronger, more ferocious than any living creature, faces his greatest challenge in King Kong Escapes. For now, Kong meets his greatest foe, a duplicate King Kong created by an evil genius, built of indestructible super steel, 60 towering feet of invincible robot. King Kong, who can defy the might of modern artillery, tanks, missiles, the vast strength of prehistoric monsters, clashes with the Kong of Steel in the battle of the century in King Kong Escapes. All new, all thrilling, more fantastic than ever, King Kong Escapes. A Toho Company limited picture, a universal release in Technicolor. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A dramatic increase in the amount of fish in Lake Kitayama leads to a science patrol investigation but little do they know that they're about to stumble into the secret dinosaur base in episode 10 of Ultraman. Arashi's inspection of the lake in submarine S21 finds nothing unusual, so Captain Muramatsu gives him, along with Ide and Hayata, a few days off to enjoy the great outdoors. Meanwhile, a reporter is at the same location to interview Professor Nakamura, AKA the Monster Professor who has an encyclopedic knowledge of dinosaurs, including a hypothesis regarding the Loch Ness Monster, but most importantly, harbors a humongous secret, an amphibious creature named Jiris that he's been raising for 15 years. When Ide and reporter Kubo learn the secret, they are held hostage by the monster professor while the actual monster fully emerges from Lake Kitayama with the rest of the science patrol in its path of destruction. This is a monumental episode, as it pits two titans of Japanese pop culture against one another. Of course, I'm talking about Ultraman and Godzilla. The giant frill and the name change, Jiris in Japanese, Kila in the English dub, aren't fooling anyone, especially with Haruo Nakajima in the suit, which itself was a combination of pieces from costumes from 1964 and 65. Although the artists at Subaraya Productions were likely just trying to make a cool-looking monster with the resources at their disposal, it's tempting to read something into the final battle, both in the result, 
spoilers, Ultraman wins, and in the gesture of respect that Ultraman shows Jiras slash Godzilla post-defeat. Fans of Ultra Q will recognize a familiar face in this episode. It's Yasuhiko Saijo, who played Ipe as a fisherman with questionable technique, and the very eagle-eyed will be able to pick out a white-coated hotel attendant on screen for only a few seconds. It's Satoshi Bin Furia, who is normally hidden from view inside of Ultraman. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. From beyond the stars come the most fearsome monsters in the galaxy. Only Godzilla stands in their way in Godzilla on Monster Island. Is even Godzilla strong enough to defeat the invaders? Matching unbelievable strength. Exchanging incredible death-dealing rays. Don't miss Godzilla on Monster Island. Rated G. The year, 1980. The scene, outer space. The story, destruction of Earth. Gorath, the most spectacular science shocker ever filmed, surpassing anything in the realm of science fiction to date. See astronauts, satellites, and spaceships operating from South Polar Base. You are actually in every exciting scene. It could happen. It may happen. to every man, woman, and child. Nerve-shattering tension will grip you and hold you spellbound in the most enthralling science fact shocker ever made in scenes never before filmed in limitless outer space. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are hearing about the Broadway version of King Kong. I found the perfect article to accompany that, Kong in New York, which appeared in FM 132. It is a detailed behind-the-scenes look at the filming of the 1976 King Kong written by young FM fan Dick Siegel, who was an extra in the film. It is totally rocking and features a visit by one of MKR's patron saints. If you don't like behind-the-scenes stuff, fast forward, but if you are like me, You'll love this diary of the filming of King Kong. King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, lay dead after a 1,000 foot fall from the North Tower of New York's famed World Trade Center. He lay amid shattered remnants of the sidewalk and was surrounded by an ever surging mass of people desiring a better look, held in check by the combined forces of the police and National Guard. Suddenly, a middle-aged woman in an emerald green pantsuit burst past the police and began to frantically remove clumps of hair from the great ape when the director cried, Cut! It was a warm, cloudless night in late June 1976 when producer Dino De Laurentiis began production in New York of his remake of the film classic King Kong. 
That evening, scores of special tactical police officers and National Guardsmen battled the imaginary Dino Kong as the King refused to make a personal appearance. Paramount special effects technicians would later mat the mechanical 40-foot version of Kong into the film during post-production filming. However, for the scenes at the World Trade Center, Kong would be there in the flesh. The next night, the paid extras filed into the open-air plaza at the World Trade Center. They received their first glimpse of Kong, 40 feet long. Kong, made of styrofoam, rubber, wood, and an $85,000 horsehair coat, lay dead. The ape was virtually surrounded by Klee lights, cameras and boom, an energetic crew of filmmakers, and, behind wooden police barricades approximately 1,000 feet in back of Kong, thousands of curious New Yorkers. Before actual shooting commenced on the final sequence, a search was on for extras with ties and suit jackets. These fortunates were handed cameras and assumed the roles of reporters who scamper about on Kong's massive chest. Finally, the other extras were led into the place in a large circle around Mr. K, as the film crew nicknamed the monster, while the director took close-ups of the stars for a couple of hours. Soon it was time for the non-professionals to emote. The assistant director, who was in charge of the crowd and, via walkie-talkie, in constant communication with the director, told the crowd to turn around and take ten giant steps back and thin out. The mob was then told to advance slowly, become excited, accelerate their pace, and try to push their way past the police and guardsmen to reach Kong. Do not look at the cameras. This is real life. Look only at Mr. K. Roll him. Spurred on by the novelty of playing with the tallest, darkest lead in Hollywood, a green-clad housewife continually managed to escape the police and reaching Kong, taking souvenirs for her children, ruining several takes. Other shots were spoiled by an overly enthusiastic extra who shouted out, That's Carl Denham! He must be the man who captured the ape! And thereby making half of the crowd laugh. In between scenes, a curious event would take place as a man carrying plastic bottles of a murky red liquid would slowly ascend the prostrate form of Kong. He is precariously upward until, rising atop Kong's chest, he bent over, unscrewing the top of his bottle, and proceeded to pour the old red Carol Swerp all over. Indulging in a little bit of movie magic, Gillerman would constantly ask for more blood to be poured on. Mr. K had a big fall, the blood man as he was dubbed, would always receive enthusiastic cheers and applause for his bloody trek. Assuming their starting positions again, the extras began their lackluster charge forward. Another assistant director tried to psych the crowd up by wielding his megaphone and marching around crying, This is a science fiction movie. Serious stuff. No laughing or giggling, please. You're on your way home after a day at the office, school, whatever, and you're confronted with a 40-foot eight that just fell 100 stories and is a bloody mess. You're scared, curious, and compelled to see Mr. K., Remember, we're trying to beat the old classic. His last statement brought more giggles and words of disbelief. At approximately 12 midnight, Director Gilliman cried out in anguish, Our break for lunch! Quickly, the cast and crew dispersed and embarked for the various dining areas. The extras formed several huge lines and soon attained the mythical yet real-tasting box lunch. After the break, the professionals and non-professionals assembled for a sequence in which Jeff Bridges attempts to break through the crowd to rescue his beloved leading lady, Jessica Lange, from the flash cubes of the fourth estate. Before shooting begins, Bridges gets a layer of sweat from the prop man, who sprays him with an atomizer. Strategic people in the crowd then separated themselves, giving Bridges a path. Then the director began rolling and Bridges bobbed and weaved his way through the crowd, only to be repulsed by the police. 
On most shots, the camera stopped as he reached the police. But on several occasions, they kept rolling as Bridges ran back through the mob, knocking over unwary extras who thought the take took. Then, while the crowd relaxed, a sequence involving Jessica Lange, the reporters, and the mayor of New York took place. The mayor was being played by Mr. John Agar. Agar would now save Miss Lang from the fearless photographers. The scene unfolded as Duan, freed from Kong's grasp, is hysterical and besieged by the flash cubes and questions of nosy reporters. Suddenly, Agar, resplendent in his black evening tuxedo, rushes forth and puts his arm around her. She doesn't want to be consoled by a smiling publicity-seeking mayor, and Miss Lang breaks free, rushing off camera to seek her lover, leaving a very disappointed John Agar. Later, John Agar was signing autographs and chatting with fans behind the large boom. Agar, at 54, is still in excellent condition. He's slimmed down from his tarantula days, has neatly barbered gray hair, and sports a Carl Demonesque mustache. He recounted how, in a western with John Wayne, he was forced to ride a horse bareback for the first time and told of the ensuing results. To relieve his posterior pain, he was advised to fill a hot bath with sea salt. When he had done so and sat down, he promptly went through the ceiling. Ow, Agar says. That really hurt. Never put raw meat to salt water. Having been thanked for his time, Mr. Agar posed for a photo and then with a resounding you bet, vanished into the stillness of the night. The following Sunday, shooting was completed on schedule. Despite a fiasco earlier that week when a real mob of New Yorkers, 10,000 strong, showed up to see Kong and rioted. The extras were thanked for their cooperation and assured all that theirs would not be the face on the cutting room floor. The prop men then covered Kong with a huge tarp to prepare him for his trip home to Paramount Studios. Upon leaving, most extras I spoke with felt that where Dino Kong will make a lot of money and perhaps be a good movie, it will never measure up to the genius of people like Willis O'Brien and his amazing staff of technicians who in 1933 produced the classic King Kong, which has been seen and cherished by millions of people across the world. Unfortunately, once the Paramount Kong is released theatrically for Christmas, 76, the original will be withdrawn from general release, so it will not compete with Dino Kong, according to Variety. This must not be done. The RKO Kong will not compete with the newer version as it is on a higher level of entertainment and must not be allowed to languish in a deep, dark vault in Paramount Studios. Although I had my brief moment of fame as an extra, there is only one real Kong for me. Please. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. It's 1976. The American merchant vessel Petrox Explorer has just set sail from the port of Surabaya in search of oil. What they find will shock the world. We may be sailing into the history books. She's alive! You know, maybe my luck has changed. They will discover an uncharted island that is the home of the most incredible creature on the face of the earth. called Kong. Dino De Laurentiis presents the most
most exciting original motion picture event of all time. Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com, and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. technical developments are being made to protect mankind. Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Fool humans, there is no escape. excitement will grip you as you watch living organs ripped from the bodies of voluptuous females as beating hearts and throbbing brains are transplanted to create the astro zombies cringe in terror scream in fright as these skull-faced monsters strike blindly at living flesh and the motion picture screen flows in the blood-drenched wake of the astro zombies the beautiful voluptuous deadly vicious satana a woman who would stop at nothing to gain control over the astro zombies whose creed was kill, kill, kill. John Carradine as the deranged scientist, Wendell Corey as the doctor who opposes him, match wits in this bloody, sadistic, terror-filled, suspense-laden horror film of brutal mutilations and senseless killings as the astro-zombies go berserk and threaten a city with death. Watch it and you die a thousand deaths. The astro-zombies in color, coming soon to your local theater. 65 tons of steel... 985 feet of electrical cable, 1,500 connections, 16 microprocessors, and one Paul McComas on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. How you doing, Paul? 
I'm blaming it at all on the apes on Broadway. To uh, paraphrase the Bee Gees. <laughs> um, <I'm, laughs> well, Derek, it's, uh, it's my tale of two cities uh, phase of life, I guess. The best of times, the worst of times. Um, you know, I will mention, because it is pertinent, one of the reasons I think that uh, the Kong mythos, when it works, and when it works really well, touches me is because I do have a deep affection for animals. And my wife and I, we lost our, we call him our only child. Um, he's the only dog I've ever had and the only second that she's had. And he almost made it to 15. Sam, the amazing retired rescue champion greyhound who came to live with us when he was almost five. And he lived with us for 10 years, 10 weeks. And what I found is that going out to the movies and seeing, say, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, or um, a version of King Kong, and I don't mean like a spinoff or sequel, I, I mean, you know, there have been three versions of King Kong, as far as I'm concerned, on the big screen, and, um, you know, generations apart, and then the Broadway show, mm-hmm. really made me long to go home and, and hug my hound, you know, because there's something, one of the many facets of the mythos that I think compels is the connection uh, between human and animal, and finding the, you could say humanity within the beast, but that may be unfair to the beast, actually. Um, finding the decency, the empathy, the compassion, the potential for those things within the beast. So uh, that's the hardest thing I've had to deal with. I got not a great uh, medical diagnosis about a, um, a congenital heart issue, but it's not like anything needs to happen on that front immediately. And then on the other side, things are really taking off for me career-wise. So, best of times, worst of times, just like Paris uh, in Tale of Two Cities. Uh, I, too, I mean, and you know, we're friends. I mean, you know this about me. And, and anybody who listens to the podcast for more than five minutes knows that I, too, am an animal lover. Yeah. So, whenever I see a movie that kind of touches on... I guess, for lack of a better term, the humanity of animals, uh, you know, really does affect me in that way as well. And I can't tell you how many times I've stopped watching a movie and then decided I needed to cuddle one of my kitties. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> because for for that very reason. So I, I, yeah. I think to some extent we're so accustomed to violence, uh, you know, depicted violence, stimulated violence against humans in TV and movies that we have a much higher tolerance for that. Whereas if I'm seeing a movie where some animal is being harmed, you know, it's like, no, 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 God, I can't deal with that. Uh, And, you know, we are told to value humans above animals. I will say this, um, at the risk of coming across potentially as racist, which anyone who knows me knows I'm not, I would rather we not lose entire species of great apes. Um, in Africa and in uh, Borneo and Sumatra. I would rather we not lose those entirely forever than that human settlement of any color or race continue to expand into those decreasingly tiny areas. And I would be willing to make financial contributions toward helping the people who would infringe on those ape areas, uh, giving them uh, the means and the lodging to live and have wonderful life, lives elsewhere. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Well, this got pretty heavy uh, pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's Paul, you know. Yeah, Come I on. know, I, I know. We're not going to play the Chris Farley show. You know <laughs> that. It's not going to be, oh, you remember when, when he did, when he tore the snake's jaws apart? That was awesome. That's not going to be, no, we're gonna, not going to. <laughs> well, you know, it helps. <laughs> you know, someone, someone, someone on a mutual friend of ours, Paige, recently said of uh, Godzilla versus Kong, you know, you snobs, that prayer paraphrasing, you snobs, you elitists, just stay home and watch your Ingmar Bergman. Like, I'm sorry I have a master's in film. I'm sorry I'm a professional media scholar. I'm also a Kong scholar. And I actually uh, demand certain prereqs uh, to consider something to be a, a full-on and successful Kong movie. And I, I've enjoyed some Bergman. I certainly is not one of my favorite directors. But uh, I don't like this insinuation that there's something wrong with media criticism and media theory beyond the level of, oh my God, it was awesome when Kong did this and Godzilla did that in return. You know, that's certainly part of it, but movies can be so much more. There is so much you can get yeah. out of it. And just stories and media in general, there's so much more to it than just turning off your brain for two hours and eating a bunch of popcorn. You know, there's so much more you can get out of these things. And I think one of the reasons why Kong right. resonates is because, like you said earlier, when it's done right, there is a lot to be gleaned from these movies. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a popcorn ride, too. But there's so much more there. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about King Kong Escapes today, right? Not escapes, <laughs> right? Oh, that was funny. I like that. Yeah, right. Doctor No, right? Was that his name? Doctor uh, Who. Who. Was it Doctor Who or Doctor Who? Doctor Who. No. Who? <laughs> but not the Doctor no. Who. It would have been much more entertaining if it had been the Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, and Kong had picked him up by his silly long scarf. Ooh, I just pissed off all the doctors. So hundreds of fan fiction writers um, just started taking notes right now. Doctor Who versus King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably already been done. Yeah, it's not that Doctor Who. If you watch King Kong Escapes, hoping to see a Doctor Who movie, or, or a decent movie for that matter, Ow, then um, you, you, your hopes, I, hopes are going to be I, dashed. I didn't say it wasn't I know, fun, I know, Sarah. I know. You know, there, yeah, we can talk about I know the there's difference. a difference. I, know I love that I adore that film, but I also know what that film is. <laughs> and it's, and it's, yeah, it's not yeah. anywhere near as deep as any of the non-Toho Kong movies. <laughs> Right, and for those who do focus on special effects, I'm just going to say, whereas usually I say watch any any movie worth watching is worth watching on a 65 or 70 inch. Uh, Kong Escapes works much better on like a 12 to 16 inch. <laughs> um, because the miniatures yeah. are really laughable in certain scenes, from the doll that he picks up to the boat uh, in clearly like a a pool of water that's supposed to be the sea. Anyway, we're not here to talk about. Yeah, no, this, this, this was a joke that I made that spun into a, yeah, let's, let's move on. Um. <laughs> you had me for about three seconds as the listeners could tell. <laughs> uh, you had me for a second there. No, we're going to talk about something a, a lot more cool, something that I've never had a chance to uh, experience myself. And when you told me that you had a chance to see King Kong on Broadway, wow. Which is a natural because, all three film versions feature this very phenomenon, King Kong on Broadway, right? So to make a Broadway play out of King Kong and have a scene on Broadway where Kong is displayed on Broadway. Okay, I correct myself. The middle film, 76, which, as you and many people out there know, is my favorite, and which I will defend to the death on multiple levels. But anyway... Um, so Kong in New York uh, uh, in 76, but in the other two versions, literally on Broadway. And so 
to do a Broadway play as they did back in 1819, 1819, back in 2018 and 2019, and have within it Kong on Broadway. On Broadway is very meta and very postmodern and kind of cool. It sounds right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> right? I can deconstruct the hell out of that. Yep. <laughs> um, but it, 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 it was a very uh, affecting piece. And at the end of the day, any great piece to me is going to work on a head on and heart level. I mean, I could see a movie like being John Malkovich that is clever as hell. And I'm not going to call it a great movie or even really a very good one because it didn't move me at all. Those characters didn't move me. I think that... Um, the third Preacher from the Black Lagoon movie is a really well-done film in a lot of ways, but those people are so unlikable, um, you end up really just feeling for the creature, and that's that. It, it is one of the bleakest films I've ever seen, the one where the creature has to have that reparative surgery after the fire, and it, it does have a great ending, and I won't spoil it if someone out there hasn't seen The Creature Walks Among Us, which also is a great title. But, but anyway... Uh, back to Kong on Broadway. As I understand it, the main challenge for them was coming out of a company that makes those animatronic life-size dinosaurs. And by the way, I am going to Milwaukee. Uh, my first trip back to my hometown since uh, before the pandemic and quarantine. I've had both of my shots like one a month ago because I work with elderly folks. So I got a little bit fast-tracked. Um, but I'm going up to see Dinosaur Safari, uh, among all, two other things I need to do up there. And uh, it is a drive-through Jurassic Park slash world style experience. Am I bringing my video cam? What do you think, Derek? Oh, oh yeah, and, yeah. I'd be disappointed <laughs> if you didn't. <laughs> I'm going to probably do a little mini documentary. Um, right on. You know, punk rockers uh, in Dinosaur Park, something like that. Anyway, so it's the same company that makes the animatronic dinosaurs that created this Kong. And the big question was, are we going to be able to confine this to the indoor space of a Broadway theater? And I think that that required a lot of their time and energy and thinking and talent to pull off and damned if they didn't pull it off in fine fashion. You sent me a copy of the book that, uh, I, I, I don't know, is it a souvenir book? I'm not sure what you call it. Yeah, it's, like the, a big, it's a big program. You call that a program. It's like an oversized, uh, soft cover, maybe 22 pages or something, 24, something like that. I sent it to you as a loan. You'll understand that right there. <laughs> what? What's that? I didn't hear that. What? What? No, no, I know. I know. No, no, I'll be I sending it back. I photocopied it so that I could read up on it for this, uh, <laughs> you know, reread it. And then I sent you the original and, and then Derek disappeared to the Yukon territory um, intentionally because he didn't want to give it back. No, I'll be sending. I'll be sending it back. Fine. No, no, that's fine. Um, but I was reading it, and is this was a production that had been in the works for a few years in terms of like scripting and everything else. And I can't imagine the amount of work that went into figuring out how to make King Kong work on stage. I mean, this book touches on it, but it still just seems like an overwhelming proposition. Yeah. It sounds like they pulled it Many off. Many years, I think. I think that it took 15 years, if I'm remembering correctly, or maybe 13. I think they started in like 06, so let's call it 12 years uh, till its debut on Broadway. Um, now, don't quote me on that, but I think it was 06. And uh, they were inspired, in, well, before they were inspired by War Horse 
and I would argue perhaps by The Lion King. So initially they were planning for a full-on animatronic. And what's interesting to me is the same thing happened in the early to mid-70s in advance of the 76th release of, again, my favorite of the Kongs for mm-hmm. a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. As just as an aside, you can see the influence of all three versions, 33, the 76th, and what was it, 04, 05, the Peter Jackson? I think it was 05. Um, I think it was 2005. Yeah, that sounds right. 05. You can see the influence of that, all of them, um, in the, the Broadway show. I'm going to say that the middle one perhaps is the most influential of the three on the Broadway, except insofar as it's the only one that it does not take place in the 30s. Sure. Um, whereas the first version is contemporary to the 30s, so it takes place in the 30s. The third version, made in this millennium, is set back in the 30s, and then the later, you know, 2018 to 19 Broadway version, like Jackson's, is retroactively set back in the 30s. Despite that commonality between versions 1, 3, and I'm going to call Broadway 4, nonetheless, I think that there's a little bit more of the 76 in the Broadway than, than perhaps of the other two versions. This too was a digression, but I remember where I was. Similar to with uh, the 76, they initially thought that Kong was going to be uh, an animatronic, a great big life-size animatronic. And as you know, they only wound up using that in a very few shots. It didn't look good. It didn't really match with the wonderful Rick Baker costume and the fantastic facial expressions done basically through old-school hydraulics. Mm-hmm. So much more effective to me than CGI. Something that actually occupied real space and that actors could res- and to which actors could respond and so forth. But ultimately, they made the decision. It's a kind of similar decision to what De Laurentiis' team made of, this ain't going to work, so let's go for more of a human element. Now, in the case of De Laurentiis, it was putting Rick Baker in very painful uh, cornea-tearing contact lenses inside an ape suit, a really good ape suit. Mm-hmm. One thing I would have changed, I would have given him arm extensions uh, to walk around on, on a little more on all fours rather than just walking on uprights all the time. That makes sense. One of I my minor complaints about 76. But in the case of Kong on Broadway, their answer was to combine some animatronics with puppetry. And they cite as an influence Warhorse, and that's certainly valid. I'm sure Warhorse was an influence where the life size uh, titular horse was combined, was controlled by uh, several what they call voodoo puppeteers. They kind of wear black and they try to fade into the background. By the way, the voodoo puppeteers are the closest thing you're going to come to um, natives or, or uh, <laughs> you know, um, that whole aspect of King Kong on Broadway in King Kong on Broadway mm-hmm. because there are no natives. Right. So for sticklers, just rewatch the other versions. So, um, but the other thing I was going to cite as a possible influence is, yeah, Lion King, Julie Taymor, uh, reimagining it. This was before there was the, you know, the, the so-called live action CGI version. Um, but after the original animated Disney mm-hmm. uh, version of Lion King, Julie Taymor did it on, uh, on stage and on Broadway using essentially a combination of voodoo puppeteers and uh, actors with, with large masks atop their heads. So closer to Warhorse, but a little bit of that Tamor. And I would argue that um, Warhorse itself was probably influenced by Tamor 
and Lion King. So you have kind of a that as the grandparent, in a sense, of Kong on Drugs. If that makes sense. It does. And just so people know, uh, War Horse was another production that was done on Broadway based on a book, right? A book, and it was also a movie. In the movie, they used the, an actual horse, or maybe horse does, and right. uh, on stage, it was this amazing uh, puppet operated by uh, the whole crew of so-called voodoo puppeteers. Okay. Again, reading in this book, and I saw the bit about the voodoo puppeteers and... Uh, just, man, what what an incredible job they must have done to be able to do what they did on Sage while working with the people up in the balcony with the with the uh, radio controls and everything else going on. Just the production of that alone had to have been, right. wow. Just not to run into each other when they're all dressed in black on <laughs> right. a dark stage during one of the night scenes, you know, like uh, Moonlight Lullaby. Mm-hmm. And there are some other wonderful night scenes. The lighting was excellent. Even in the night scenes, there was nothing that you missed. doesn't work that well if you go to YouTube, which everyone should, and look up King Kong on Broadway um, and watch those videos. Do not watch them on your phone. Do not watch them on a freaking you know, 15-inch <laughs> computer screen, or I will come over and poke you hard in the ribs. You've got to watch this on the biggest screen to which you have access. And for me, it would be the 65-inch. Uh, with the lights off, particularly helpful for the night scene. Uh, the, the skill, I mean, they're puppeteers. They are also essentially dancers. And whoever put them through their paces, I think it was a collaborative effort on the voodoo puppeteers' part to figure out, you go here now, and I wait for you, and then I go over there. So they're dancers, they're puppeteers, they're really choreographers. They're mm-hmm. really actors because they are creating um, the, the body language um, movements of, of Kong, which is where so much of the emotion comes from. But in addition to everything you just mentioned, the folks up in the balcony using the, you know, the remote uh, to operate the animatronic elements of him, and in addition to the voodoo puppeteers, there's audio. I mean, audio is really an underrated element of anything cinematic, and I'm going to say that this is a really cinematic stage show. Mm-hmm. The voice of Kong was done by one person, although on the day we were there, my wife and I, uh, there was a little sheet of paper in it that said, at this performance, the role of Voice of Kong will be played by James Retter Duncan. So maybe the original Voice of Kong had laryngitis. Actually, that would have served the part. Um, or maybe the, you know, that rasp. Or maybe uh, had been replaced partway through. I don't know. But obviously, they put this human voice through a bunch of filters. And it comes out as an amazing series of wonderful, wonderful roars and grunts and the like. Yeah, I was talking about so, that as well in the book, that there, there is a yeah. vocal person live doing the mm-hmm. performance with everybody else. And it is filtered and mixed with some animal sounds and just really kind of gave mm-hmm. it character. And, and you mentioned how audio is so under Dude, you're on a podcast. If, uh, yeah, we know. Audio is life. Yeah, for instance, in an independent film, and I'm working, you know, I'm making one right now, my first feature, my debut feature, um, you better make sure that you've got great people and are spending a lot of money, um, relatively speaking, relative to the rest of the budget on sound. For one thing, if people can't make out the dialogue, they're going to give up on the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And and for another thing, uh, you know, it is very much, cinema uh, is very much an auditory medium ever since Al Jolson and the jazz singer and uh, the best cinema uh, that David Lynch leads to mind, uh, I think, really uses that audio component 
um, to, to do something beyond, oh, here's what you would hear if you were seeing this on stage. Mm-hmm. And then Kong on Broadway is almost a reversal because it is based on a movie or um, a series of movies, a movie and two remakes, if you will, um, and then brought back to the, brought to the stage, not back to, from the movie theater to the uh, Broadway theater in a reversal of the usual um, order of things. There seems to be, and if I'm, I want to make sure I read this correctly, I wanted to run it by you. They made a pretty significant departure from the original film in that they eliminated one of the characters. Is that right? Did I read that right? Yeah, no Jack Driscoll. Um, and, you know, in the in the 76, uh, there was still Jack, but he had a different last name and he was a, uh, a primatologist or a paleoprimatologist. Um, and then, of course, we, we were back to having Jack in the, in the Peter Jack son. How could he not? That name. I always felt that one of the weak uh, points of uh, the original Kong was that can't act as we're way out of a corner. I mean, talk about Steph. I'm going to blank on his name, but there's a million people right now um, shaking their fists at me in rage. And that's fine. I take it as a compliment. You know, uh, uh, Robert Armstrong is denim. Right. It's uh, Robert Armstrong. Yeah. Robert Armstrong. He's wonderful. He's oh, wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's Ray Ray is wonderful, but that's stiff. Who's the stiff that plays uh, Jack Driscoll? Are you talking about Driscoll? Um, he is Bruce Cabot. Cabot, yeah. I'm sorry. I, Not I a act fan. better than Bruce Cabot. In my <laughs> sleep, I act, I act better than Bruce Cabot. Um, so anyways, there's no Jack. And I think it's a very good decision because it puts the focus on the relationship that, to me, is the key of the best. Uh, version of Kong 76, and that is the relationship between Andero and the giant ape. Now, uh, if Steve Sullivan hears this, our dear, beloved, mutual friend Steve Sullivan, oh, <laughs> talented writer, you remember what happened when I did a two-parter on the Kong mythos and why I like 76 the best. He called in three freaking times over the course of one afternoon and left very long voicemails that you aired every single second of, by the way. And I call that part three of Paul's Kong cast without Paul. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> he kept thinking of new things to say. But I want to refute them now, because if not now, when? Okay. He said, he said, well, Paul says that, you know, it's a Beauty and the Beast story, and so um, the, the girl, the blonde, has to care about the ape. But no, it's not mainly a Beauty and the Beast story. If it were, that we have one of those. It's called Beauty and the Beast. And I would say, Steve, it's the last line of the original version, the version that you love. And it's clearly at the heart of every version is this beauty and the beast. And uh, another thing he said was, but the 76 has no dinosaurs. And, you know, if I'm going to see a Kong, I want to see dinosaurs. And I would say, paraphrasing him back to him, Steve, if you want to see a dinosaur movie, there are lots of those. This is a Kong. 76 is a Kong. Okay? It's not about the dinosaurs. And to me, one of the failings of Peter Jackson's version, too many dinosaurs, too many bugs, not enough time spent on the central relationship, which to me is the most affecting in 76, when there is a kind of romantic element to it, a passion to it. Peter Jackson ran away from that. He turned it into a full-on pure friendship slash 
she's Kong's pet, and then sort of toward the end, he's kind of hers. On Broadway, a mixture of 76 and Jackson. There's clearly a friendship that develops here. If there's anything resembling passion, I would say it's implicit, not explicit. I may be projecting that onto this. In 76, clearly Kong wants her, just as he wants her in 33. Only in 33, she screams and screams and screams and screams and runs and flees and screams some more and doesn't give a care about his exploitation on the stage and doesn't care, uh, you know, that he falls out the building. I think she's super relieved when that happens. Mm-hmm. So it was 76 that reimagined in the teeth of the women's movement. Reimagined, it wasn't even Andero, but look at how they used the letters in Andero to create Duan. That's pretty clever. Uh, Jessica Lang's character. She's the one uh, within this, you know, these four versions of Kong, the first one to care and to love. And in the scene when he's blowing her dry after she's fallen into the lagoon, there is this sense that though she obviously doesn't want him as a sexual partner, there's something about his primal energy that is overwhelming to her in a way that perhaps is not entirely negative. And I would call that a form of passion. I say this as a feminist. Okay. You know. Okay. Sure. So that was a lot of things at once, and, you know, pick it up wherever you want. <laughs> uh, I'm just drawing a bunch of stuff at the wall. No, you know, hey, you know what? what? It's fine. You know, my favorite episodes of Monster Kid Radio to edit and release are the ones that turn into... I'm not going to say this is a stream of conscious kind of thing, but it is <laughs> It is all over the place, and I love it because it gives us so Eric, much to kind of talk about, you know? It's a stream of consciousness. Oh, okay, I'll take that. Oh, I'll take that. I'll take I, that. Thought we had, I, I thought we'd used up all the puns related to Kong in our previous two-parter, but apparently not. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Are you going to con- congratulate me for coming up with that one? Well, I was going yeah. to at the end, but, you know, I'll, I'll do it now. I'll do it now. Congratulations. 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 Yeah, um, one thing that... You no, know, he grew up on Famous Monsters, so the puns yeah. are the rigueur. I mean, if it's not, Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, I'm looking at the book. I'm listening to you talk about the relationship that they establish between uh, the Darrow yeah. character. Do they call her and- Andero on Broadway? Yeah, is it she is. So, okay. She is Andero, and you know, uh, she like like the Naomi Watts Andero, uh, and to some extent the Jessica Lange, because again, that's in the teeth of the women's movement. It's not after the women's movement, right? So it's during the evolution of of women's consciousness in the seventies. Um, but one thing that the Jackson version and the Broadway have in common is relative to Darrow that she very clearly, um, reflects, uh, a modern conception of a strong young woman to an extent that Lang halfway does. Whereas made in 33, you have in Faye Ray's character, a woman who faints, you know, as, women allegedly did, or at least they did in the movies back then, but I'm guessing not so much in real life. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you could say that the Jackson and the Broadway are anachronisms in a sense, and you could say that the 33 buys into the sexism of the era, and that would leave what as the most genuine uh, depiction of, uh, you know, how a woman might react in this situation, why it's 1976, isn't it? 
a character who has been derided and stereotyped as a dumb blonde and isn't. If she talks out loud to Kong and tells him her zodiac sign, it's because she's scared yeah. and is trying to, you know, talk herself through into a calm place. There are <laughs> she has a lot of very clever, funny lines, actually. Mm-hmm. And clever, funny lines don't come from So, you know, Derek, just let me make a plea right now for people to be less reductive and less reductionist. And just like, you know, I'm never going to say that 33 sucks. I'm never going to say that Kong Skull Island sucks. There's a lot missing from Kong Skull Island, particularly Mm -hmm. for me. I think the ape is way too big. And as a result, you don't get to have that, you know, special bond between Kong and um, uh, the, the young woman in the film. It's just a cursory thing, really, toward the end. I really love the giant muskox, by the way. Or whatever yeah, the I remember us talking about um, that, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, the the, the weird-looking dinosaur-like alienish things, I, they, they bored me. I mean, after the first few minutes, it's like, yeah, I've seen a lot of this now. Why don't you go develop a relationship between Kong and the young woman? That would be a lot more interesting than watching all this freaking CGI. Yeah. And I know they made him big in Kong Skull Island because of what happens after the credits, right? Which uh, came out, what, a month ago? And I haven't seen I it I was going to ask you. I um, haven't seen it yet. I haven't heard someone ask you. Yeah, no. I'm, I already know that there is not a central Kong and young woman slash passion interest mm-hmm. um, at the heart of it. Uh, someone implied to me that maybe there was a child. Um, you know, that's called a Gamera movie. I, I, you know, that's not really what I'm looking for with Kong. Gamera is the children's friend. I remember that very well from my own childhood. But anyway, about Anne Dara. So a very <laughs> elevated feminist take on Anne Darrow. And the 800-pound object in the room here is that they cast her um, as African-American which is really interesting yeah. to any Kong scholar. Christiane Pitts. I, I just want to make sure I get her name right because she was wonderful. Christiane Pitts. So I'm going to tread lightly here because this stuff is super sensitive, especially now. There is inherent within the Kong mythos this unsavory association of, of, that racists have mm-hmm. between uh, people of color and simians. There is this awful slur. And if you look, too, uh, at the story of Kong and the very premise of Kong, it is someone dark being brought across the sea in fun. Mm-hmm. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the racist slur to put race out there, at least subtextually, uh, within, I think, pretty much every version of Kong. This choice to cast Anne Darrow as African-American subverts that to some extent because the other part, the other unsavory part of that subtext is his love for the blonde. Okay. And you can't get much whiter than the blonde uh, starlet goddess. And uh, that is something that got that notion applied not to uh, simians, but to men of color got a lot of men of color lynched, whether there was any kind of uh, predation or not, and the vast majority of the time, certainly not at all. A rumor could do it. Mm-hmm. So all of that is, is boiling and broiling right under the surface of the Kong mythos. To cast Christiane Pitts, a wonderful actor, singer, such feeling, and you can see it. I, guys, 
go again, go to YouTube and look up Hong on Broadway and watch it on the biggest screen you have and watch it with the lights out so that the night scenes work. Cause you know, just in the transfer over to video, you're going to lose some of the um, definition that you would get if you were there sure. in the theater. Right. Yeah. In those night scenes. So, what it does then is it takes away the whole dark stranger in bondage brought uh, against this will from across the sea, desiring the young, blonde, white, starlit goddess. It, it removes that from the equation. Okay. Okay. And so the, the, the whole thing is less racially charged, paradoxically, by crossing the color line to cast um, Darrow not as the blonde, but as this beautiful woman of color, this beautiful African-American woman. Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is really interesting. One thing that I was going to ask you about too, and, and I, I love the way they put this, and I was going to ask you how obvious it was to you watching it. Uh, this is something the director wrote in the book regarding the script. My initial observation was that the story centers around two creatures that can't verbally interact with each other, a gorilla that can't speak and a woman who feels that she can't be heard. That sentence by itself just struck me as rather profound. It is, and I'm glad you pointed that out because that struck me too. And it is a feminist piece. Sure. Um, I would say that the 76 and the 05 and the Kong on Broadway are all feminist pieces, uh, not exclusively, sure. but among the other things that they are, like adventure stories and beauty and the deep tales. And you have a, a strong female protagonist in each of those. And what I would say about both the Jackson and on Broadway is that they're a little bit revisionist. I'm not saying that women weren't or couldn't be that strong back in 1933 when both Jackson and on Broadway are set. I'm saying that there is a level of empowerment and acceptance of empowerment um, by some of the other characters that is perhaps a little woker than you would have witnessed in 33. Now, it's probably more so the case with On Broadway, no, uh, uh, with Jackson, sorry, because in On Broadway, Denim is the villain, not initially. Initially, he's the Denim that we know, mm -hmm. uh, whether played by Armstrong or Jack Black, but he becomes the villain of the story increasingly over the length of it, and it's clear from the beginning that he does not take Andero seriously. Now, you could say part of that is gender and part of that is race, except that there, to my memory, there is nothing in the script, nothing in the book of King Kong on Broadway that references or even alludes to this Andero being black. And so that itself becomes either an issue or at least a talking point. Mm -hmm. Is it not just revisionist on gender to a certain extent, less so than Jackson's, is it also a little revisionist on race? Because, you know, that she would be invited to go across the sea to star in the movie. She, an African-American woman, in 1933, at a time when, you know, that uh, the film industry was still grossly stereotyping um, any African-American characters that, that happens, uh, other than Paul Robeson in The Emperor Jones, maybe. So that's a little revisionist. It's that quote-unquote post-racial world that some people think we live in. Mm -hmm. We're not in any post-racial world. Yeah. And so to portray Andero that way, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment. But then the whole thing's a fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe I can allow it on the basis of that. 
they comment that they cast an African American, but it has no impact on the story based on what I've read here. And it sounds like it doesn't really matter on stage either, which, you know, I mean, you read into that, whatever you want. I think it's interesting. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's totally revisionist. And, uh, man, I, I'm trying to imagine just seeing that either on screen or before. Well, I'm going to watch the YouTube video, of course, on my big screen TV in the dark. There are a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're in for a treat. Cause there are a bunch of them on a big TV in the dark. First of all, Queen of New York. I'm going from the top. If you just put into YouTube, King Kong on Broadway. Um, actually, I'm, the soundtrack is not available. And I'm really disappointed because I know that listening to those songs again, and they were good. Again, I'm not going to be reductionist and say, they were great or they were terrible. No. Um, the reason to go is the creature. Uh, and then to a secondary extent, uh, wonderful Christiani Pitts. But it's a good book. It's a good songs and lyrics. It's great choreography, honestly. And um, apart from the creature, I give the show a B. And then when you put the creature in, you're up into A- minus territory um, because the creature is so impressive. And before we finish, you've got to ask me about our seat. So here I am at King Kong on Broadway uh -huh. on YouTube. Uh, first one is show clips. And uh, it's got a number of Next one is Stephen Colbert meets King Kong. Next, we have Curtain Call, where she comes out and uh, takes her bow, Christiani Pitt, mm -hmm. and then Kong takes his. Um, Broadway preview. <laughs> they have Kong take a bow. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, in his way. Um, Broadway previews, King Kong the musical, uh, King Kong Broadway Curtain Call again. There's a piece about the Marvel puppet. Not Marvel. Um, I'm a DC guy anyway, but the, the, you know Marvel with small M. I admit, yeah. <laughs> uh, King Kong performance of Full Moon from the Melbourne musical. That one I need to watch. Actually, I'm seeing that's a different actress, and that is a white actress, and I haven't seen this hmm, one. Interesting. King Kong scene with pre-visualization. The roaring contest. This is where she, Christiane Pitts, and Kong roar at each other. Oh wow! <laughs> before their friends, and you see her agency and her power. And tends to Kong's wounds. Full Moon Lullaby, that is a wonderful song that she sings to him. It's somewhat reminiscent of the Full Moon sequence in 76, but without the um, defrocking okay. of Dwan. And then you've got the Cobra fight in here a couple of times. This is another thing that on Broadway has in common with 76, is that there are no dinosaurs, but there's a giant snake. And the giant snake is wonderful. And it made my wife bolt upright in her seat. Wow. We can talk about uh, seats now, if you I want. I would love to hear about I it, yeah. King okay, King Kong Sneezing is another video on here. There are a ton of them. Huh. But when we're done, uh, oh, they also appeared in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Macy's Parade. Um, <laughs> All right. And uh, anyway, there's a lot here. And just take a Friday or Saturday night or whatever and put off the lights and grab some popcorn. Say, I know what I'm doing enjoy tonight. These. Yeah, right? Right. Hook your, your uh, laptop up, or if you can do it right on your smart TV, just watch these on the biggest screen possible with the lights up. First thing I'm going to do when we're done is watch this one from the Melbourne, because they did kind of work this up in Melbourne, um, not as, you know, like they did on Broadway, but a lot of these people came from Australia who, uh, who did the show. I remember one of them in the booklet talking about walking outside the Broadway theater where they were getting Kong ready and seeing the Empire State Building and how it almost seemed to lean toward him as if uh, in encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the oh, I got to hear okay. this, man. God bless my wife, Heather, who 
by the way, like me, an amateur primate, if not amateur primatologist, then an amateur um, primate lover. You know, I've cradled a baby orangutan in my arms when I was a teenager, and I, I have been forever a huge planet of the apes and Kong sure. fan. So, uh, Heather, uh, when she was uh, majoring in anthropology, or did she get her? She's got a master's in English, and I think she has one in anthropology, too. Yeah, she does. And at one point, that involved uh, bi-weekly visits, I think, to um, a captive uh, orangutan male youth taking oh, notes, wow. uh, behavioral studies. Um, and when we met, it was one of the 436 things we realized we had in common. Um, <laughs> another one was the love of Wonder Woman, derived uh, initially from the TV show, The Linda Carter. And uh, But as I pointed out, you know, I was a 15-year-old boy, and you were a 7-year-old girl, so we were probably watching for I was going to say, yeah. Uh... Rimshot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> I found out oh, that I love this. Uh, the 15th anniversary, I found out that the 15th anniversary edition of my debut novel, Unplugged, uh-huh. 15th anniversary edition came out in 2017, that it won a prize and that there was going to be a ceremony in Times Square. Um, I forget the name of the restaurant or banquet hall where they did it. But I was like, you know, what? I want to go get this in person because in this trade of ours, the writing and filmmaking and music making trade and acting, mm-hmm. acclaim and you know, reward can be hard to come by. Uh, there's so much rejection, and by the way, this is our excuse to go see Jeff Bridges in To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, and this is my excuse, and kind of yours too, honey, because you love apes, to go see Kong on Broadway. So we went out there for three nights, we played two plays, and I got my prize, and it was a wonderful trip. It sounds, it sounds um, amazing, yeah. Yeah, and you know, actually Kong on Broadway was a more um, fulfilling experience than uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, as great as that script is, as great as Jeff Bridges is, always. They had the three children characters in To Kill a Mockingbird played by young adults, and it was incredibly off-putting. After I thought, uh, you know, at the intermission, I mentioned it to Heather, and she said, yeah, right. And then after we saw the whole thing, we read some reviews that made the same observation. And this was Aaron Sorkin's production, The West Wing, you know? Um, huh. he, he should know better because what happens is when you have adults playing adults and you have adults playing kids in what is otherwise a very realistic stage show, adults playing kids just come off as crazy or challenged or something is off. It seems, seems like an odd choice. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it done both ways and you can get away with it if it's like Snoopy come home or something where it's only child characters. Mm-hmm. But when you're mixed adults as adults with adults as children, it just is so distracting for the whole thing. You either triple cast children so that each child actor only has to do a third of the shows because there are labor laws about this, and rightly so. Sure. Or you cast 17-year-olds who are small in stature and aren't going to be so glaringly, obviously, a 30-year-old with crow's feet. I know it's on stage, so it works a little better because there's more suspension of disbelief on stage than with a movie, but it was still really distracting. And I'm going to say that the Kong animatronic slash voodoo puppeteer creation was more plausible as a giant gorilla than those three adult actors, two guys and a gal, were as children. 
in To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Now, the thief, the thief, Heather bought us, I've got my ticket right here. She bought us the two best seats in the house. Yeah. Front row, orchestra, center, okay? And I'm just going to tell you, without all the surcharges, these were 169 each, and so worth it. Because there's a scene toward the end. I can't even remember whether it's on the island or on Manhattan Island, where Kong alone comes right up to the front of the stage. Oh, dead man. Center, dead center, looks down at us, reaches a hand toward us. I mean, literally us two, the two of us. And if I had stood, I could have touched his hand. And I remember <laughs> thinking that going into the show, I thought, well, you know, Dates don't exist to our knowledge. And this is the closest I'm ever going to come to seeing one in real life. And in that moment, of course, the same thought went through my head. Oh, my God, this is as close to real as I am ever going to get. And he's right here. And he's reaching toward me and my wife. And he's looking us dead in the eye. And I swear to you, Derek, for a microsecond, I believed. And then he reared up on his hinder and roared. Wow. You know, I've known you for a few years now. And when you are really excited about something, I, I, I... I know what you sound like and what you look like. I'm just trying to imagine you sitting in that theater seat and Kong reaches out to you and you suddenly turn into like a little eight-year-old kid, just like, ah, (laughs) so excited to see it. Oh, man. Exactly. And the sad thing is, you know, I've, in advance of this interview, I spent some time online hoping and praying and searching that it was going to be, oh, here comes a revival somewhere, London, whatever. yeah. You know, because uh, it's a very expensive, difficult show to stage. And unfortunately, the reviews were mixed. I'm going to say again, apart from The Creature, this was a good show. Not okay. a great show. Not a lousy show. You know, I, I, the reductive nature of criticism. I, I write reviews of movies and sure. records and uh, books and one restaurant. And, you know, very often I'll say it's good or it's very good. And here are the reasons why. And Here's a couple of flaws that I found, or maybe more than a couple. So I hope it will be remounted. I found myself thinking in advance of this interview, well, could you do it without the puppet? Because it's a decent book, decent songs. The choreography was fantastic. Could you do it uh, with shadow play would be the way I would try. I wouldn't put a seven foot three guy into an ape suit. I would not do that, even with arm extensions and an oversized pet. I would not do that, but I would maybe screw around a little bit with shadow play and see if it could be done that way. There's a little bit of it in Kong on Broadway. When he kills the snake, mm-hmm. that's done through shadow play. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't think it involves the puppet. I think it's like a, a secondary um, mobile Kong that could very well be two-dimensional plywood with a plywood snake, but it looks great. And then blood, simulated blood represented by streaks of light streams down oh, wow. okay. uh, from the top to the bottom. There are, and you'll see that when you click on um, Cobra fight, uh, the fight with the giant, uh, in this case, a uh, giant cobra. And the one in 76 seemed to be like a giant rattler because you could hear it rattling. Right. Anyway, uh, so 
I hope it gets remade. If, if I ha- had the budget to do it full on, I'd do it. And if I had a limited budget, I would do it. I would try at least uh, with shadows. I would I would go into pre-production and development with shadows and see if it could be done that way. Hmm. Or you just go find a giant ape and you know train it. No, no, no. You don't want to bring it from its island. So. I've seen that movie. I know how that <laughs> ends. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. No, it's mean. Leave them be. Leave them be. So, and there's no natives. And so, you know, Kong just sort of happens upon her in the midst of the jungle. And that's fine because the natives are problematic. You saw what Jackson did. He made them not really of color exactly. I think he painted their faces on colorblind, but what he paints them blue or something. And so they sort of became in a sense, non-racial or quasi-racial, but not black. And in 33 and 76, they were essentially Africans. And in the Tohos, they've tended to be Asiatic. Yeah. Um, but I think it was a good choice to just lose the natives uh, completely. And you, so you lose the wall. And there's much more time for uh, Anne to sing to Kong. And the stuff in New York before Kong is really nicely done. It's very kind of Depression era slash late flapper era. You know, when she steals the apple, you believe that she's a hungry girl, you know, with a lot of talent who needs a break. And that's straight out of 33 and, and Jackson. And, and, you know, to some extent, it's Dwan, too. She's, she's been promised a role in a sort of a casting couch kind of situation um, that she has resisted, apparently. But then the whole ship goes down, and she's the lone survivor, and so she's stuck, you know, without the opportunities that she might have had if the boat hadn't sunk. So, you know, I think there's a lot more that the versions have in common, frankly, which is why we wind up looking uh, so so keenly um, at the difference. Sure. Man, I wish I could have seen it. So tell you what, yeah. Paul, if you ever do mount a, a, a revival, let me know, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I would probably, jeez, eh, I wasn't thrilled with the idea of Denim becoming the villain. It worked, but I like the character so much from uh, one and three. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a movie maker, I relate so well to his enthusiasm. And I love the fact that Jack Black's version, there's a moment there where he, as I recall, he's like hanging off the edge of the ravine and his movie reels are right out of reach. And that's got the golden footage on them, right? And the dinosaurs and maybe some of Kong too. And it's almost like he's trying to decide like Jack Benny with the mugger, you know, your money or your life. And Benny, after a pause, says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) And so I get that, you know. (laughs) It's something I've always loved about Carl Denham. Charles Grodin played a great, kind of corporatist uh, shill of a villain in 76 yeah. um, and, and was very funny uh, in the role, but he wasn't Carl Denham. And, and see, this is something I'm saying that uh, the other two uh, film versions uh, have over 76. Uh, see, I don't see things in black and white. <laughs> I see all the gray. And that's where I like to live is in all the gray, where you can see the ups and downs, the pluses and minuses of each, mm-hmm. and then come out like I do saying, Actually, 76 is the best, um, in, in large part because the relationship between um, Kong and, uh, we'll call her the girl or the young woman, the blonde, except that the, the new the Broadway version goes a different way on that. This was the pioneering version, 76, from which Jackson, whether he'll ever, ever admit it or not, you know, consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, 
76 was part of the mythos by the time Jackson went into development. Mm -hmm. And both Jackson and um, the on-Broadway adopt the 76 take on the relationship to a great extent. And that is to say that a bond will form, a friendship will form. In the case of 76, it's a little bit more than that which it was in 33. I mean, it's the passion part is, is in 33, but it's one way. Mm-hmm. In 76, it's one and a half ways, I'm going to say. It's there for Kong, and there's something kind of vaguely implicit there on her part that has more to do with just the overwhelming power of nature. Um, but, but it was 76 that pioneered the notion of Anne Slash Blonde as not just screaming and fainting. Yeah. And uh, that makes it a much more interesting piece. Sorry, Steve, it does. <laughs> and, uh, and that's why they kept it, whether they as Peter Jackson or the Aussies on Broadway. And, um, you know, to the extent that those two versions succeed, and for me, the Broadway succeeds better, more so, than the Peter Jackson. But to the extent that they, they both succeed, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they went the same way that John Gillerman and Dino De Laurentiis and Jessica Lange went in 1976. And I will, I will have that debate with all comers, including you, Steve. <laughs> including you. Well, I'm just going to throw my... I love you, Steve. Oh, yeah. I love you, Steve. Derek and I, we both love you. We both love you to pieces. We do. Oh, well, I'm going to put my... But you happen to be wrong about this Oh, one. no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I, I just, I just want to put out there, for me... I think 76 is the most underrated of the three films. Uh, I, for me, I prefer the original just because I'm, that's just how I'm wired. But I think 76 is a very, very close second. And the 2005, okay. sometimes I can kind of just take it or leave it. But the, the first two, yeah, it's too long. long. It's overly long. It's overly. Yeah. It, I, and I know I shouldn't do this because it's just a tool, but. The CGI just turns me. I, I want a physical yeah, thing. Yeah. I want to know that somewhere no. somebody actually physically touched Kong, didn't just That's you know. Right. So, but you know, I, I really and like the seventy six. No, this is an interesting way that you put it, Derek. Listen to yourself. Someone touched Kong. Yep. So, in the case of thirty three, we have Willis O'Brien and his assistants putting heart and yep. soul into the manipulation of the stop motion puppet, mm-hmm. and then you have that giant face that you know, alternates between looking cool and looking. Um, But for that matter, 76, you got the beautiful Rick Baker costume and his wonderful performance, but then you have a few shots toward the end of the ridiculous uh, robotics. So it's kind of comparable in that sense. It's a a design that mostly works and then in a few places doesn't. But I I know that you prefer 33, and I'm never going to change your mind on that, but I just want to end my portion on this note before we do the old... What did John Lovitz do? Plug away with that show. <laughs> Plug away on uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. <laughs> I'm going to ask you this question, Derek, and I know you're going to respond honestly, and I think it's going to make my point. 33 versus 76. Is it even close as to which one has the more interesting core relationship between Kong and the blog? No, I, I think I think you're absolutely right there that once we get into 76, because of the era that's in, you said it's in the middle of uh, the women's rights movement and everything else going on, we are afforded an opportunity to have a much more complex character, which leads to a much more complex relationship. That's right, because 33 is a one-way relationship. Mm-hmm. 
And how can a one-way relationship hold a candle to the two-way relationships in 76, 05, and on Broadway? It can't. And that relationship is the core of the Kong mythos for me. And it's why 33 will always come up short. That and freaking Bruce Cabot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and that's... Oh, James. Oh, James. Why would they let a dame on the ship? Well, you're not bad for a dame. It's not just that the dialogue there sucks. Yeah. I do love the music. Well, the music in the 76, the John Barry score is so lush and romantic. Again, underrated. Complete, oh, man, so good. Yeah, right. Right. He's, he's my second favorite film composer after um, Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, um, John Barry, his range, check out his score for the TV movie with Ed Asner called The Gathering. Mm. It's so different from Pong, and it's so beautiful. Um, but, uh, so the music in 33 is great. The Steiner score, um, they're walking through the jungle, seeing the dinos. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the music in the Broadway is really great. I don't care for the music in Jackson. I think it's overall. It's well, and that's, well, that's a Jackson thing. Yeah. Well, it's a Jackson thing and it's a James Newton Howard thing. And it's that whole school of film composing and I could go off, you know, or is more is less. Yeah. The more is less school. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, <laughs> what are we talking about? King Kong escapes. That's right. My favorite part was, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, my favorite part of King Kong versus Godzilla, uh-huh. uh, you know, the old one, the sixties one, uh-huh. my favorite part is the octopus. Um, and my second favorite part, the octopus is great. It makes a great oozy sound. Talk about the importance of audio. Yeah. It makes a great oozy sound as it oozes uh, into the mise-en-scene. But my second favorite part is they go through the cursory motion of Kong holding, quote, the girl, unquote, uh-huh. um, and stepping up onto an incredibly low temple roof. And it's like, this is your freaking Empire State equivalent. <laughs> I mean... He could fall off there, and he might scrape his knee. That's it. You know what I'm talking about? I do. I, Isn't that versus Godzilla? It's not Escapes. I think that's versus Godzilla. I think, I think yeah. he actually climbs a tower in uh, Escapes, right? Yeah, well, yeah. And you know, King, King Kong versus the original Kong Godzilla yeah. will always hold a very special place in my heart because it was the first of the classic Godzilla films that I saw on the big screen. And uh, it kind of was what turned me into a kaiju fan. But again, when yeah. I watch it, I, I have to turn off certain parts of my brain and really engage with other parts of my brain because there's just the depth isn't there. It's a couple of guys in a suit in suits beating each other up, and I love it for that. But no, the, well, the Toho Kong take is nothing like <laughs> the 30s or no, the 70s. So. Honestly, the two Toho Kong picks, I kind of lump them in with Skull Island, and I'll probably add the new one to that because the Kongs are too big. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the special effects are better in the CGI one from the last few years. Sure. But yeah, I would lump them together because A, the Kongs are too big. B, there's no, you know, um, uh, significant Kong and the young woman relationship at the core. And, and uh, three, or is it C? Was I doing numbers or letters? I can't remember. <laughs> three slash C, it's not the King Kong story in the way that 33, 76, 05, and on Broadway are the King Kong story sure. with variation. Sure. 
It's it's fascinating to listen to you talk about Kong in this way because it's the way that I used to talk about like zombie films or or something along those lines that you can have the zombie story archetype and tell certain types of stories with them and you can tell when they don't really have the the depth or the the imagination or the uh, the messaging behind what they're doing depending on what kind of zombie story you're telling and I feel like listening to you talk about the Kong story I'm getting that same kind of vibe you can tell a King Kong story or you can tell a story that might have Kong in it right that might feature Kong yeah right yeah. Um, in some kind of confrontation or Kong bath situation <laughs> which is not the same as uh, a Kong a version of King Kong. Right. But in terms of, you know, you mentioned the zombies, and I will say that the Romero films mm -hmm. are extremely laden with many oh, layers yeah. of meaning. Um, Dawn of the Dead original being probably my favorite just in terms of consumer culture. Mm -hmm. You know, setting it in a mall, the scene where they're they're limping around to the accompaniment of Muzak. Oh man, I love that film. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I have not seen the remake because this is one of those why on earth would you even bother? I, I struggle with the remake for numerous yeah. reasons. And, uh, yeah. 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 Um, now, there are two types of zombie films as far as I'm concerned, and the type that I grew up loving has gotten short shrift. Mm -hmm. We didn't have Night of the Living Dead when, in the you know mid-60s when I started yep. uh, to watch movies. And I didn't see it when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, reading Famous Monsters. I was too young for it. The zombie movies I liked were things like I Walked with the Zombies, so one of my top five movies ever. You and I did a podcast yeah, on it. Beautiful film. Ago. Beautiful film. Ages, beautiful. Proto-anti-racist mm -hmm. film. Way ahead of its time. Jacques Tourneur, the French director, that didn't hurt that we had a director coming from France, which was already you know, somewhat woke on race uh, by the 40s, and uh, he's a great director, amazing director. Mm -hmm. Actually, I talk about the Tourneur films a lot more than I talk about the, the Luton. I think that uh, when it was Tourneur and Luton, those were the best of the Lutons, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, so I walked for the zombie, Voodoo Island with Boris Parloff, which is not a, not a good film, but a really fun film. You know, oh, it's a white, white zombie in there. And that, so these were zombie films um, that, that were not about marauding, flesh-eating, post-apocalyptic zombies. And, and yet younger people, when you say zombie, and, and a lot of older people too, you know, when you say zombie these days, the genre has been so co-opted mm -hmm. that it, they're not going to think about voodoo. They're not going to think about Haiti or New Orleans. They're, you know, they're, they're going to think about the Romero-esque or, or what's the TV show, uh, The Walking Dead. They're going to think of that. To me, one of the great uh, zombie films of the uh, of the second type, the marauding cannibal on dead zombies, is Return of the Living Dead, hmm. the dark comedy. Yeah, <laughs> one of the zombies grabs the walkie, police walkie-talkie, while they're chowing down on a cop <laughs> and says, "Send more cops," or maybe it's send more paramedics, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Field, I know. That's but, okay, though. I, and and don't, don't even get me started on the voodoo puppeteers, because frankly, they should be operating that thing from somewhere else uh, via a miniature Kong figurine um, if they were true voodoo puppeteers. Ah, see, right. there you go. There yeah. you go. All right, well, at the beginning of all this, you said, when we were talking about how things were going, you said your career, you've got some things coming up. You want to talk about anything here before we wrap up? Yeah, I would love to. Okay. Um, something to watch for it is, you know, 
made a lot of short films, and some of them have done pretty well in national and even international film festivals. My short called Blood of the Wolf Man, which is like a good werewolf movie, is about much more than werewolves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about violence and guilt and, uh, um, and redemption. Uh, it won an international prize some years ago, and I should have gone and seen it because it was projected at night on the outside wall of some Greek ruins on a Greek island. How awesome is and that? they sent me a photo of myself as the wolfman, but it's Albert, um, on the exterior of that, that ruined wall. Um, but I should have just gotten the money together and gone. Let's talk about once in a lifetime. Anyway. After making shorts, so since 1973, uh, when I was 11, uh, how long is that? 48 years? Wait, is it 48 years? 73? Yeah, 48 years. I'm tackling my first feature. You know, my my, my fanboy coming of age uh, comedic novel, Planet of the Dates, was optioned for four years earlier this millennium, and that fell apart. Um, in typical Hollywood style, the optioning producer got into a hissy fit with the agent, and they're both out there in Hollywood, and here I was in, in Evanston, Illinois, trying to mediate and make peace between these two jerks. Um, and, and, you know, that's not the writer's job, actually. Right. So this time around, uh, my first novel, my debut novel, Unplugged, came out in 2002, and 15th anniversary edition in 2017. I'm executive producer. I'm co-directing with a female director to be determined because it is a it's a story of a woman and a female protagonist. Um, I've hired an all-female animation team, and uh, I am I've given myself the fifth largest role. It's going to be an animated feature, and uh, I've given myself the fifth largest speaking role. Uh, the fourth largest speaking role has already been recorded by one Edward Asner. I'm going to ask you about that, if you could announce that, because I saw you post some things on Facebook about working with him, and I know that you're a huge fan. So that's amazing, man. He's the sweetest guy on earth. Okay, I told you at the top of the show that the conversation started to trail off not because of Paul or me, but technology got in the way. So I want to come in here and just kind of share with you what Paul was trying to say there. And I want to make sure that I give him his full due. He's got Ed Asner lined up to do a voice in his film unplugged. He also has the musician, John Doe from the band X lined up to do a voice as well. This will be an animated feature. Paul is going to be an executive producer and a co-director on the project. He's trying to get a female co-director to come in as well because one of the main characters, the main character is a woman and he wants to make sure he has that point of view when it comes to directing the film. And I think that's pretty responsible, actually. I applaud him for that. This is something that he's been trying to do for a long time and it was something that got optioned and then things kind of fell apart there. So he's just going to up and do it himself and he's committed to doing it. More than once during the conversation, he told me if it takes three years, if it takes eight years, he's going to get it done. The plan right now is to create a sort of sizzle reel and then shop that around and see how that goes. And hopefully he'll get some bites. He'll get some nibbles. He'll get some people wanting to throw money at the project. Then we'll go from there. I 
am super excited for Paul. I have had the honor or the pleasure of seeing a lot of the short films that he made when he was a kid, some of the films that he's continued to make as he moves along, as he's grown over the years. It's incredible, and I'm really excited that Paul is going to be able to finally see Unplugged realized in this way. If you want to know more about Unplugged, I did some checking. There is an interview that he did with the Chicago Tribune back in 2017 with Brian L. Cox. It's called Shout Out, Paul McComas, Unplugged Author. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, but if you want to learn more about Unplugged itself, you can go check that out. It looks like they even have the option to listen to the article. I didn't check that out before I started recording, but yeah, it's right there. You can learn more about Unplugged and more about Paul. You can also go to his website at paulmccomas.com. Again, link in the show notes. Now, Paul was telling me that a big part of the website, you know, he hasn't really updated it lately because he's been working on other projects, but there are links to all of his books and his reviews and so on. Those links still work, so feel free to check that out as well. Paul, thanks again for making the time to be part of Monster Kid Radio. You've been part of Monster Kid Radio for a very long time. Couldn't do what I do without people like you, so thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening, for being part of the show this week, for being here, for spending some time with us here at the podcast. It means a lot. It also means a lot when you share the podcast with people by retweeting tweets and sharing posts on Facebook, by getting involved on Reddit or Discord or YouTube, just letting people know about this little podcast that we do here. I have a blast putting the show together and knowing that there are people out there enjoying it just makes it extra special. So thank you for being part of it. If you do want to tell anybody about the podcast, you know where you send them? To our website at monsterkidradio.net. Here is where you're going to find everything that we've talked about in every single episode of Monster Kid Radio. Links to everything that we've talked about, that interview with Paul, Paul's website, everything else that we've got going on, you'll find links to. We'll also make sure there are Amazon affiliate links in the show notes as well if you want to buy anything from Amazon, not just what the button is for, but anything from Amazon, please consider using one of those buttons to get to Amazon and then do your shopping because we get a little bit of credit for every purchase that's made through one of our affiliate links. It doesn't cost you any extra. It just takes a few pennies that would normally go into Jeff Bezos's pocket and puts it into ours. So any help you can give us would be greatly appreciated. This weekend at the Monster Kid Movie Club, we are doing Underwater Horrors. I'm really excited about this. This is a project that I, you know, I have a real passion for doing this. The Monster Kid Movie Club show on movies on Saturday, anywhere from six to eight to sometimes ten hours of movies every single Saturday. You know, it's something that I look forward to. I sometimes stay up way too late Friday night building the stream, but I don't care because it's totally worth it. And underwater horrors is a topic that I'm incredibly excited about. I love underwater monster movies. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the alienness of underwater that, I don't know, just adds that extra edge. I know I love Creature from the Black Lagoon, so maybe it's some bleed over from that. Whatever it is, it's an amazing subgenre, and I've got some great movies lined up. We're going to be seeing things like the silent film version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We're going to be seeing the 2017 movie Sound from the Deep, Destination Inner Space, Monster from the Ocean Floor, and a few other films. Make sure you join us at monsterkidmovie.club or just look up Monster Kid Radio over on Twitch at twitch.tv and join us on Saturday 
night. 11 a.m. Pacific is when the pre-show starts, and that's always put together by the amazing Scott Morris. And then around noon, the movies start. There's a live chat. There's a giveaway. We play a round of the Classic Five live with everybody there. It's just a really good time. So that's coming up on Saturday. And then the following Tuesday at the same place, same website, around 3.30 p.m. is when the pre-show starts. Around 4 o'clock, we show movies again till about 8 o'clock. This time on Tuesday, we're showing some more serials. Uh, we're probably going to do Spy Smasher. I'm not sure what else yet, but we've got some ideas percolating up here that uh, I say we, like there's more than one of us. I've got some ideas about what we're going to be showing that day. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming. And then at 8 o'clock every Tuesday night Pacific, Jeff Pullier and I talk about an episode of Star Trek. And this time we're going to be talking about the classic original series episode, Cat's Paw. So that'll be coming up. And then, of course, next week, this Thursday, same place, same pod time, same pod channel, another episode of Monster Kid Radio with D.B. Spitzer, where we're going to talk about the movie Robot Monster. I recorded that one about a month ago as well, and I'm excited to revisit that conversation when I do the edit and sharing it with you guys and gals. I already mentioned our Facebook and our Twitter and our Discord and everything else, but if you have any comments for the show, any feedback about King Kong, anything Paul had to say, anything at all about anything Monster Kid related, feel free to drop us a line. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Between now and next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to this song, Abismo. Marino. It is copyright 2021. Cease Malakian. It is by Cease Malakian featuring Wiki Sickies. You can find them at ceasemalakian.bandcamp.com. And just to be clear, that is spelled S Y S M A L A K I A N.bandcamp.com. Or you know what? Just follow the link in the show notes. You've been here for a while. You know how it works. Go check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.